the fragility of the current system is underappreciated massively. Like what could happen is beyond what a lot of people expect. It is this safety net below the trapeze that I think a lot of people sort of take for granted and is, I guess, as the trapeze gets higher and higher and as debt loads get more exorbitant, this thing could potentially, you need to be ready for this thing to unwind in a way that's wildly uncomfortable for society. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. It's another week and yet another episode of the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Thanks for joining us. This week's episode is a discussion that Josh and myself, Dan, had on Twitter Spaces and the Bitcoin Magazine podcast with Chris Alamo and Q. This chat centers around a three-part series we've recently published in Bitcoin Magazine. It's titled Fixing Broken Fiat Plumbing, a firefighter's take on today's precarious economic mechanics and how Bitcoin steps in as an empowerment tool for the middle class. In this hour, we cover a number of topics both in and beyond these articles, including currency debasement's impact on wage earners, why QE is often poorly understood by Bitcoiners, debt versus GDP spirals and what a soft default looks like for a sovereign nation state, why we shouldn't be rooting for global economic meltdown, and much, much more. The articles we discussed are linked down in the show notes, and if you're finding value out of what we're doing here at BCB Pod, do us a favor and subscribe on your app of choice or on YouTube and leave us a review on Apple. Bitcoin Magazine is a publication and a company that earns more and more of our respect each passing year. If you're interested in the Bitcoin Amsterdam conference, you can use promo code SATS, S-A-T-S, for 10% off tickets. Additionally, they recently released the terrific censorship-resistant issue for which you can use promo code BMLIVE, that's B-M-L-I-V-E, for 10% off. The Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast is powered by the most badass company in Bitcoin, CoinKite. CoinKite's array of products can do it all in the Bitcoin custody realm. From gifting your 88-year-old grandmother some Bitcoin who doesn't even know how to turn on a computer, to complex security schemes that make highly secured classified regions of Area 51 look pathetic. Most notably, the cold card is the most reputable signing device, aka hardware wallet in the business, and it's recently been upgraded. The new Mark IV has improved secure elements, USB-C connector, new plastic, NFC, massive RAM for multi-sig, and much more. But it does not stop with the cold card, folks. CoinKite has new custody products worthy of your attention. The Tap Signer, for example, is a simple Bitcoin wallet in your pocket. Think of it as a Bitcoin private key on a card. You can sign mobile transactions by tapping the card on your phone. TapSigner is a way to securely store Bitcoin on your phone by keeping the private key off of the device. Use promo code BCB for 5% off select purchases, including the cold card, at CoinKite.com. Without further ado, here's our chat with the boys at Bitcoin Magazine. As a heads up, this was recorded on Twitter Spaces, so please excuse the audio, which is below our normal standard and does have a few momentary glitches. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Thanks for joining us, Dan and Josh. Uh, I know Q and I are excited to have you guys here and to talk. I guess if you guys want to give a brief introduction of who you guys are and what you guys do, and then we'll get into it. This is Dan here on the uh, blue collar feed, and then Josh is our shit posting uh, handle firehouse trash can. Firehouse we trash. are you. That's what you would expect to get is shitty audio out of a out of oh, a trash sure. can. Yeah, we're it's a, a couple career trash. firefighter paramedics in the Midwest. We uh, work at the same place. We're dear friends. We launched a podcast well over a year ago. We have weekly conversations where we talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Not necessarily in that order, uh, but no, seriously, it's been an awesome excuse for us to talk to a host of people we never thought we'd have access to, and it's been a fun, fun journey 
together and, and it, as friends at the same fire department, awesome opportunity to sharpen our minds together. And we agree on a lot and we disagree on a lot. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's a good balance. And I want to get this uh, right off the bat. You guys mentioned, but when you close the last space that we had written this piece, Dan wrote this piece, but I'm going to take ancillary full credit for it because <laughs> of the amount of, um, you know, I've just influenced Dan to such a degree that I feel like I basically wrote it through him. <laughs> I was your scribe. From, from the sounds of it, these pieces wouldn't exist without you. That's so right. Like, yeah, exactly. As far as I'm concerned, you wrote them. Yeah, we could just you say Josh wrote it. Let's just cut me out of the equation altogether, guys. Yeah, hang it up, Dan. I'll uh, I'll take over from here. All right. <laughs> thanks, thanks for playing. Thanks for playing, so Josh. I'm fucking the odds. Yeah, so it's a, it was a three-part series, and Q, if you don't mind uh, pinning them up in the nest, that would be awesome. But I know the first one was basically uh, talking about the fiat plumbing system and how Bitcoin fixes this. So I'll kick it over to Dan and Josh to start. I know there's a couple key pieces that I, I, I want to touch on, but I guess give a brief, uh, too long, didn't read for the people in the audience that haven't read it yet for what this entails, and then we can go into more of the nuanced details once you give an outline of it. For sure. I guess a couple preliminary comments. The spirit behind this, these pieces, these were originally written as one long essay, like 10,000 word essay. And Bitcoin magazine said, there's no fucking way we're publishing a 10,000 word essay. So they split it into three, which I think ended up working out great because each part is sort of distinct. The audience I had in mind writing this, I think every author kind of has somebody in mind that they're writing to, was actually someone that's you could say intermediate macro understanding that that hasn't fully grokked the implications of Bitcoin or the precariousness of the current macro environment. So in that sense, the piece is like it's pretty heavily nuanced and it's it's softer than uh, you might expect out of an ardent Bitcoiner. The first part of the series set the stage for why the current system is fragile and as a result of that fragility, inequitable. The first key piece is just kind of the, the, the Cantillon conundrum is the way I title it of whoever's closest to the spigot um, has the most monetary advantages. And then the second piece that I really hone in on is what I call the reserve currency conundrum, which when you have the world's reserve currency, a fiat centrally controlled currency at the base of the monetary system, you have inequalities. And I dive into a lot of Triffin dilemma type stuff. One thing, though, gentlemen, that I, I did try to do, and, and the essence of this piece really is systems that are centrally controlled and manipulable based on credit are a big fucking problem. <laughs> and we're sitting in the middle of one right now that's been going on for decades. And so uh, we'll get into more of the details on this, but um, explaining in some detail within all three of these pieces, why credit-based systems are bound to implode, why rescue on the downside ends up leading to just ever-increasing ballooning on the upside and uneven money distribution. Um, so that that's a lot of what the first section gets into. It's a very light Bitcoin. It's almost no Bitcoin. It's basically all macro. Yeah, Josh, is there anything that you want to add to that as well? Yeah, <clears throat> I think you did a great job of kind of fleshing out exactly why somebody, why the current financial system is in such disarray. Um, and as he said, the cancel on effect, uh, it basically is those receiving the money first disproportionately benefit from the versus those who receive it last. And that can also be introduced through the manipulation of interest rates. Um, Austrian econ economists would argue that an artificially low interest rate uh, causes malinvestment because uh, your your profitable company at say three percent rates, which are artificially three percent when they should be ten percent, would be completely bowled over and you know destroyed at ten percent, which is the prevailing fair rate above inflation. I'd argue right now. So these zombie companies being able to perpetuate um, basically forever or until the entire system implodes, they. They basically take market share from smaller, more agile companies that should exist, that should be the ones benefiting in, in an economy that's actually fairly priced. The, the, the other thing, I, I love what Josh just said, and that's certainly certainly true, the amount of malinvestment and the, and the reasons behind that is exorbitant, as we all know. 
one like key piece of this, like the, the, the title of this is at least the first section, but the overarching essay was fixing broken fiat plumbing. And then the subtitle is a firefighter's take on today's precarious economic mechanics and how Bitcoin steps in as an empowerment tool for the middle class. And I think, you know, a lot of the themes we're probably going to touch on this hour are themes that Bitcoiners are aware of. What we're trying to do with our podcast and with our platform and whatever, you know, small amount of reach we obtain is we, we have a passion for helping educate, insulate and protect our demographic, which is the middle class. And so if we just look at the sample size of our peers, you know, not everybody has the same passion and zeal for economics that, you know, those of us do on stage here. But most individuals can sense that that something is not right. Right. I mean, things I highlighted in here were, you know, money that just magically appears in your checking accounts, you know, talk of trillion dollar coins, stock portfolios hitting all time highs in the midst of a global economic disrepair and shutdown. I mean, we could even say, you know, useless crypto tokens, come rocket, just launching into oblivion and then and then crashing and just general volatility in markets. I think the average individual they don't have their finger on the pulse of exactly what those issues are. And unfortunately, those issues are not simple. They're incredibly complex. And I think, you know, I made an attempt in these pieces and we make an attempt week to week to try to make some of this digestible for the average Huckleberry. For those who haven't read the articles yet, uh, I will give you and Josh props that the resources that you guys pulled from, whether it was charts, tables, articles, was immense. Even just going through the three articles and just clicking on the links that you guys reference at the end of each one of the articles is uh, is very, very awesome. And uh, I had a lot of fun going through it. I think our editorial team did the right thing by breaking up into three pieces because yeah, it would be a little, little overwhelming to do all three into one. Uh, but I guess we could start on something that you kind of just briefly touched on, the zombie companies, and then also how it benefits them unfairly to other companies that are more smaller and competing. Uh, I think there's one of the lines that I loved and that you referenced is Preston Pish mentioned, the expansion of monetary policies is universal basic income for the rich. Uh, I guess, Dan or Josh, I know this is something that you guys have talked about on your podcast countless times because I've listened to it, but do you want to expand for the audience? It, yeah, sure. Um Basically, it's the idea that anyone who's wealthy has got the ability to own scarce assets, whether it be, you know, beachfront property, lakefront property, or some rare um, art, whatever, whatever piece of property that is scarce in the world, they're more likely to own it than someone in the middle or lower classes. I mean, when we talk about the lowest classes, we're talking about minimum wage being waiters or servers somewhere, and they're just treading water if they're lucky. They're they're probably pulling three jobs just to maintain. They don't have the ability to own anything other than, you know, hopefully scraping by to make rent. And so as the inflation tears through the economy, as it's doing now, they're effectively getting 9% poorer right now every year. And the middle class, they might own, say, a home or, you know, a car or something like that. But those assets generally are not the ones that are premium assets that are going to, they're going to gain the most in the overall economy as this thing, you know, tears through 9% inflation. So Michael Saylor, just to pick him out is, you know, he owns property in a yacht probably, and he's probably got a shit ton of resources that are gaining ground at a rate greater than 9% a year. So he's effectively getting richer every single year while guys in the middle class and lower class are getting effectively poorer every single time because no one's getting a 9% raise uh, from wherever they're getting a wage from. So this actually, this part of the piece. This was the hardest for me to write. Um, and what we're really getting at is we're back to kind of the, the Cantillon conundrum, right? That, that we've hinted at. I, I want to be very careful as we continue to create content, Josh and I, that we're not going to get it all right. Far from it. We're a couple bozo firemen. But we also don't want to take shortcuts, be hyperbolic and misrepresent complex stuff that needs more filling in. So you know, one area that we've spent some time on the show, just immediately going one to one saying QE is money printing. Now, I think that is a directionally correct metaphor. And if that's kind of all someone can latch into, I think it will serve them well. The couple things Josh and I think we can say at this date and time with some certainty is that 
QE has done two things since it really kicked off after the GFC. Number one, it is very obviously an anti-deflationary or reflationary tactic, right? So when you look at you know, suffering banks, like fledgling banks that are probably going to drown that get bailed out in 08, 09, that's a reflationary tactic. Now, fast forward to say QE4, more recent rounds. This is now, and, and this is a ton of this piece <laughs> leans on Lynn Alden. She's in it like eight times. But this goes back to one of her pieces she wrote on QE and just walking through the mechanics of debt monetization that we just saw during COVID, meaning that a lot of fiscal spending you know, in a roundabout way, is ending up on the Fed's balance sheet and is a form of debt monetization. Regardless of the way you spin this, and that that's some complicated nuance for somebody that's not super familiar with QE, regardless of, of which way you spin this, it seems quite obvious that there is some degree of correlation between central bank balance sheets and we could say, for for sake of simplicity, equity valuations and asset valuations. I included a chart in this piece that Preston Pish actually initially tweeted, and it's from Yardini Research, and it has the S&P over major central bank balance sheets. And the way these two things trend is is almost frightening, right? So whether it's through rescue on the downside, reflation, not letting things fully collapse, it seems quite obvious that intervention leads to asset inflation. Now we have to consider, you know, kind of parlay that into wealth inequality, which is more dramatic now than it's been in a long time. And when we think about assets going up, we have to say, well, who holds the assets? And I think one of the most powerful charts in here shows the median net worth of the different uh, quintiles of society. So it's got the economy divided by fifths. Median net worth is 122 grand, but if you go down into that bottom 40%, right, of of wealth in this country, and this is the United States in particular, you're looking at well below $50,000 net worth and when you're down into the bottom 20%, you're at $6,000 net worth. The people that are thinking this stuff through are in large part the asset holders. And most people don't hold assets. You know, and and a counter argument you know, could be, well, you know, they build out a lot of mortgages too, right? And and a lot of middle-class folks have mortgages. Well, that's true, but we also have to then dig into what are the value of those pieces of real estate? Who's benefiting from massive balloon to the upside? Um, so, yeah, there's a there's some depth that's worth pursuing, but it's incredibly important to recognize that artificial money that is centrally manipulated has shown the propensity to lead to asset price inflation. And in the long run, asset price inflation is beneficial to the upper class and either uh, uh, net neutral or negative to the middle and lower classes. That That's insanely obvious and incredibly important for us to digest as we as we think through what direction is best for money in decades to come. Yeah. I think if anyone's interested in more of the nuance of the, these types of things, Jeff Snyder is also a great resource. He was on uh, Peter McCormick recently. Um, not going to lie, it's a pretty it's pretty tough to follow a lot of it, and it's taken me and Dan quite some time to sift our way through it. And I, don't, I can't say I actually fully understand it yet, to be honest. I mean, I used to be in the camp of saying like this is a very simple calculation. QE, even back in two thousand eight or two thousand seven to two thousand nine, when those QE one and QE2 events happened, like I expected inflation and we didn't see it. There is definitely some mechanism difference there. And his argument is that, and we've heard this a million times, but it's basically a supply side issue. Um, And I think that is a component of it, but I don't think any of us would believe that that's entirely it. Obviously they printed and handed out a shit ton of money in 2020 and we're seeing the reverberations from that now. Um, but some combination of those two and then, you know, just there's a lot of nuance to this. And to say that there's QE and that caused inflation is is ignorant. And, and I think I can say in our opinion. I agree. I think I think the key is to zoom out because um, like back to the Snyder and we're, we're getting into the weeds here. But, you know, the Snyder thesis has inflation being transitory. And if you kind of work to steel man your argument you could say, well, maybe inflation is transitory and that doesn't really affect the predicament of the middle and lower class, 
right? Month to month CPI prints aren't the issue here. We're we're on a zoomed out decades long time frame right. where we're seeing long term harm come to play. I'm uh, in, and so focusing in on months or even you know several years isn't necessarily the spirit behind this piece. Yeah. Well, even even if you you'd argue that this is transfer, which may be true, prices are not going back down to their norm norm where they were two or three years ago. Like that just means that we'll have these prices stick and hopefully we won't see another eight to nine percent on top of that in a year from now or higher. You know, that's arguable and I don't think anyone in this room or anyone in general really knows where this is gonna land. I sort of doubt we'll see some kind of hyperinflationary event in the next five years. I don't think so, but um, it, it, there are a lot of things that remind me of reading uh, When Money Dies. If you guys haven't, if no one in this room has read that, I'm sure a few of you have. It's it's a, a book about the hyperinflation in Weimar, Germany in the 20s. And the volatility during that time was immense. And I think, Dan, you had a chart uh, talking about gold's volatility during that time in your piece, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's in the, I think it's in part three. It's in the third piece. We'll definitely get to that. I actually did note down that very chart for part three. So I'll save that for a little bit. I guess staying down this rabbit hole of the Jeff Snyder interview, I'll speak for myself because I'm not sure if Q Wait, saw it. Can I, can I interject here? Because I want to take the yep. other side of an argument. Go ahead. Like, yeah, go ahead, Q. I, I agree. UBI in its long term by its design would negatively impact... Uh, of course, this is when he fucking calls me back. Uh, okay, I have to come back. I'm sorry, guys. All right. Well, Q takes this call real quick. Well, then we'll stay down the Jeff wow, Snyder. Was, we'll stay down the Jeff Snyder. That's a really keen way to bow out on a point. Like, oh, shit, I didn't know what I was going to say. I got a phone call, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we'll pretend like we're at the fire station, Chris. And if we, uh, if I'm ever lost, I'll just make some beeping noise and be like, got to run, folks. Uh, yeah, fair enough. I got to take a shit, guys. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, sticking with the Jeff Schneider of it all, uh, I actually watched his episode of uh, What Bitcoin Did. And while it was very good, I felt like I learned a lot about like the inner plumbing, so to speak, uh, exactly related to your article, how it works. It's definitely very confusing. Uh, I will say in caveat, I, I won't speak for you and Dan and Josh, but um, like I didn't agree with a lot of things he said in it, but it was very helpful for him to explain it. So, but long story short, basically with QE, like when the Fed is buying treasury bonds or bonds, government bonds from banks, it's basically like they're just swapping on the ledger of basically like the Fed gets the bond and then the banks get this, this like basically, I don't want to say Fed token, but basically cash. But it's not like they can just take that cash and buy assets. A right. lot of what the banks right. do is it's now on their reserve. But they're not allowed to just be like, oh, we withdrew a billion dollars because the Fed gave it to us. They basically have to create loans. So basically at that point, they, they incentivize businesses and or people buying homes to go out and you know they drop their rates so people can purchase homes or take out loans for businesses or take out loans for whatever, cars, you name it. So yep. they're not allowed to just withdraw this money and say, oh, we've got a billion dollars now at the bank down at the local corner store, like your, your local FDA bank or even JP Morgan, they have to incentivize businesses and or people to take out loans. Uh, I right. hope that's a simple explanation. And Dan and Josh, I guess, interject if you disagree. I, to be honest, like that's, that's one of the first things I thought of as well. Like, and I'm not saying again, as I said, like, I'm not sure I a hundred percent understand this. So I'm not going to sit up here and um, speak some bullshit and act like I actually totally understand this thing because it's a really, really slippery hog, <laughs> even slipperier <laughs> than Bitcoin, it seems like uh, sometimes. But that is like the the very, very logical way that I would say th the same thing. Like, okay, well, they're well capitalized now. So that m incentivizes them to go start printing, you know, loans to hand out to people, which is effectively printing money, which causes inflation. And that that was the rudimentary understanding that I thought I understood. But the more I go down this rabbit hole, I I just don't think that's entirely accurate to state, although it makes total sense. And I'm not, like I said, I don't want to sit up here and, and speak out of my ass and, and uh, say something that isn't accurate. But I think one of the points that he made that I had no idea about, I don't, I didn't know anything about the Euro dollar system at all, but it sounds like there's the Euro dollar system is where he, his inclination of where a lot of this inflation comes from, because the Fed has absolutely no control over what's going on in the euro dollar and basically IOUs that get shifted around between European banks and the Cayman Islands and all of basically the rest of the world's dollar usage is completely outside of the 
purview of the Fed. And they're just along for the ride. For people in the audience, like, man, I thought this was going to be just blue collar Bitcoin basic talk. I, we apologize. We don't want to go no, no, too it, far it, down. It, but because here's, th- here's the bottom line, like we have no fucking idea. <laughs> yeah, no, this is exactly this is I was going to say basically the same thing. I think this com- this community in general, ourselves included, we we are in a an environment where we're insulated, right? There, there's a lot of group think this go. This is true of any community. It's not unique to Bitcoin. But if you all you do is scroll Bitcoin Twitter and read Bitcoin authors, you're getting fed a a version of events, a lens on macro that does have responsible people who disagree. Which is why, generally speaking, and in this piece, an attempt was made to talk about what we think we actually know, and. I, I mean, if there's this, Lynn Alden wrote this piece, I think it's over a year old or somewhere in that vicinity. I think it's titled Banks, QE, and Money Printing. And she really gets into the nuance and mechanics behind QE. And I think for someone that's in the audience that's confused, the most recent events, the most recent tactics of QE are the most digestible in that there was exorbitant fiscal spending through covid and an enormous amount of treasuries ended up on the Fed's balance sheet. To try to characterize that as any other way than money creation and money printing, which was directly inserted to consumers and spenders, it's it's hard to kind of spin and move out of that reality. I mean, if you're going to make this extremely simple, like the most simple way to explain this is like there's two types of QE. There's the fiscal QE combination, which is helicopter money. And then there's QE within the banking system, which as far as I understand it, this is Jeff Snyder's reality, which... I'm not sure I agree with because I just don't think I totally understand it yet. That may not be inflationary because it stays within the banking system itself. But when the Treasury, the Fed get together and they decide we're going to create bonds, we're going to and the Fed is going to or the Treasury is going to monetize that and send everybody a check. That is absolutely inflationary. There's not really any I don't I haven't heard any kind of an argument that could that could take the other side of that because it's pretty, pretty obvious. More money in the system chasing the same amount of goods is going to create some inflation. And seems like a good amount of it. Yep. And then back to the main thesis, right? The the zoomed out point that when you step into the market, you know, yes, it is through swaps, but you're also not allowing an enormous amount of treasuries to go enter the market in an organic, natural way. When you backstop financial markets and when you create liquidity, when things inevitably want to delever, right? And you do this over years and decades. We have enough data now to support the idea that this leads to asset price inflation. Now back to the middle and lower class. This is a big freaking deal. I mean, even if we just zero in on mortgages and homes, like we work with guys who are having a hell of a time buying their first home. Josh and I bought our first home years ago and we were in a totally different environment based on our earning capacity than people are today. That's just one small example. But the middle and lower class are getting pinched in a very profound and troublesome way right now. Um, and the the other thing I wanted to, the other point I wanted to make, Alamo, because in this in this section, in the first section of this three part series, it gets into reserve currency, US dollar and treasury sitting at the base of the financial system, the sort of perpetually strong US dollar. Well, we're sitting squarely in the crosshairs of that issue right now. And we're seeing the DXY some unique things in comparison to, to international markets. And this this does just make our exports far more expensive, pinching the middle, you could say middle manufacturing class further. So there's a lot of things sort of coming to a head at once at this date and time, I would say. Yeah, I completely agree. Anything else to add there, Josh, or do you want to start shifting over to part two? No, <clears throat> no, actually, I, I, I think what Dan's just describing there is, again, the Triffin dilemma. And if, if anyone here isn't familiar with that, it's basically that the reserve currency country in the world has to run deficits in order to provide the world with currency that that it is that is the reserve currency in order to keep everyone else liquid. So over a longer period of time, it causes a huge problem for the reserve currency country, um, which is a which is a problem that Triffin identified back in the uh, during Bretton Woods and said was going to be a problem. Um, we basically said, 
fuck you, we're ignoring that because we want to be the reserve currency and that's a problem for 50 years ahead of time. And we're now we're watching that problem come to roost. And guys, I, I think another, like w- when we're talking about Triffin Dilemma, when we're talking about the issues of a fiat reserve currency and m- people needing dollars internationally, right, to participate in financial networks, this is a fiat problem. Like that, we have to go once again back to first principles. The, the fact that a single nation's currency is sitting at the base of financial system is a freaking problem. I think it's something that people are going to look back on in a hundred years and go, "Why in the hell were we doing that?" Right. So th- this is, I mean, Q Bitcoin, a, a an internationally neutral, censorship resistant digital bear asset, could not be more of a perfect fit. I mean, there's just so many problems with global markets disproportionately relying on one country's fiat currency. Yeah, I could not agree more, Dan. Uh, yeah, I mean, today was the FOMC meeting and everyone was waiting on bated breath with Jerome Powell with what he was going to say. You know, it's am absurd. I raising interest rates? Is he hawkish? Is he dovish? Is he, does he look happy? Does he look upset? Like, well, I mean, many Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. Like many Bitcoiners have been saying how ridiculous this is that we literally wait for one man, or I guess if you want to say all of the Federal Reserve governors of the United States, I think there's 12 of them, you know, what they decide the monetary policy is for the U.S. and ultimately the world. That's very much a fiat problem. Um, So I guess going over to part two was called Bitcoin Purchasing Power Preserver. Um, And I I guess I want to start with one of the things that was very interesting, uh, I know that you noted that when a country starts getting about 100% debt to GDP, the situation be kind of becomes unrecoverable. In 50 cases of 51 cases out of the Hirschman Capital Report, noted that uh, any country that gets to 130% debt to GDP, they have historically always defaulted. The only one exception of the, the one of the 151 that didn't default is Japan. And uh, I mean, if you look in the last couple of months, Japan yeah. has basically had their bond market start blowing out, which means that they're trying to buy all of the Japanese bonds. Their their federal ba- or their uh, re- reserve bank or central bank is trying to buy all the Japanese bonds and trying to peg the interest rates at 0.25 percentage points or 25 basis points. And the market's having a fit and it jumped up to last time I checked 0.46% or 46% base, uh, 46 basis points. Um, so yeah, it's causing a ma- major problem, and uh, you know it looks like it's only a matter of time before they default. They can either destroy their currency, or they can um, ultimately print, uh, d- d- cause inflation and destroy their currency, or ultimately default. And I think you know history says that they'd rather just destroy their currency, but obviously it'd give them a bunch of problems. So Dan and Josh, I guess if you want to take anything with what I said there, or I guess uh, start about the basis of the article there. I wanted to just comment really quick. We've talked about this this problem with the Japanese bond market with a couple of different guests. And the consensus that we've kind of come to with with a few different people was it'll be interesting to see if the Fed starts deciding to make some kind of swap agreement with them where the Fed starts buying their bonds in order to keep this whole system together. Because, I mean, if one country like Japan starts blowing out, it, it causes the contagion to move through the entire system. So it's it's in the Fed's best interest to make sure that they keep this thing floating. And if it comes down to it, I, I'm willing to bet that you'll see the Fed or some or the ECB or anyone in the Western world start trying to bail out Japan with giant five-gallon buckets to dump all that water out of their boat. And I mean, that could make this thing last a lot longer than people expect. Um, yeah. Not saying I want it to, but it, it just seems like they, they're not dummies. They're smart enough to be able to uh, sort out that it's in everyone's best interest that this whole charade doesn't end abruptly because if it does we're all going to see some horrible shit and none of us want to see that um we want this thing to die slowly take some agonal respirations maybe 20 to 25 years from now when most people have figured out how to protect themselves hopefully and very likely with bitcoin um we just don't want to see a, a real quick tailspin you know blow up. I don't think anyone wants to see that. And if they do want to see that, I don't think they understand the implications of what that actually means. Josh, to your point, uh, I mean, I think Janet Yellen took an emergency meeting with the chairman of the Japanese Central Bank uh, for exactly that. And, you know, I guess 
it was it remains to be seen what they said but yeah i could definitely see them being like oh we're gonna buy japanese bonds and then maybe like in a handshake deal it's like oh but you have to buy u.s treasuries so we're not like quantitative easing ourselves but we're propping up another economy and they're gonna prop us up it's another asset swap you know exactly yeah it's it's just uh it's like a inception for monetary purposes like a dream inside of a dream yeah the the charts in this piece are focused on the u.s but you guys are hitting the nail on the head here markets are so globally intertwined that it is not individual case studies whatsoever i mean the the potential for international contagion is dramatic and and sort of unprecedented in a lot of ways i mean the the debt situation is an absolute shit show uh, we know this if you're in Bitcoin and you listen, but it, it, this is this is one of the sort of anchor points for me. Uh, you know, I've been in Bitcoin for say five years ish, and anytime I'm, you know, we you, sometimes you're you feel like you have the whole thesis crystal clear, and then sometimes it gets a little more gray. And I think one of the the points that I always go back to is just the 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 sovereign debt environment, and and really the total debt environment that we're in. Um, that quote you pulled out, Chris, that's actually, that's a Lynn Alden quote that I have in here about sovereign nation states that get to over a hundred percent debt over GDP. But dude, I mean, it, the speed with which this has happened on a, on a zoomed out time frame. I mean, you're talking 50 years ago, public debt was 40% in relation to GDP. And then during COVID we touched near 135%. I think one thing that I tried to do in this, in this part two was distill this down to the individual and then bring it back to the nation state. Okay. So for an individual, right, if you have tons of shit, you can't afford, which by the way, and maybe we'll get into this in part three, but this is a massive problem. There's a lot of middle-class folks trying to live a middle up upper class lifestyle. And we see it even at our place of work. I mean, you look at some of the cars in the back parking lot of our fire stations and your jaw would be on the fucking floor. And it's, it's because in a lot of ways, people have been incentivized to go in debt up to their eyeballs uh, because of, of cheap money, right? Cheap and easy money. But for the individual, right? If, you, if you're way over levered, you're way over indebted, you end up just defaulting. You go bankrupt, right? You're, you get called in, but it's, it's way, way different for nation states, pr- particularly one with reserve currency privilege like the United States. And, and so we have to understand that there's this opportunity for soft default. When you have significant access to the price of money and the quantity of money, and we touched on this with QE, you have the ability to slowly monetize this debt. And so that that's what you referred to from that Lynn quote of in, in virtually all cases where debt gets over 100% of GDP, debt is in some way monetized. And there's bag holders, significant bag holders, largely those with fixed income. Foss talks about this all the time. I quoted him in here. And here's one of the quotes. In a debt GDP spiral, the fiat currency is the error term. This is pure mathematics. It's a spiral from which there is no mathematical escape. So back to the main point here. Well, who's going to be who's going to be harmed by this? Right. Who's going to be harmed by debasing fiat currency because of a debt problem that can't be solved any other way. And a lot of people are going to be harmed, but I think we make the argument week in and week out that middle class members are going to be directly in the line of the debasement firing squad. You got people that are relying on social security, pensions, annuities, even, even Chris, um, traditional retirement portfolios that are working off of a, uh, outdated risk parity composition that's just not going to work. I mean, when you're 40% exposed fixed income over the next 30 years, I think you're going to be left holding some bags. And this goes back to inequality because the wealthier in society generally have access to choice assets, to the know-how, to financial professionals that are going to allow them to get on the lifeboat, so to speak, and escape this this sinking ship, which is going to be sort of perpetual and insidious debasement of fiat currency over the next decade, two or three. At least that's how I see it. Yeah, Josh, is there anything you want to add there or do you want me to hit on the next point? No, I think Dan covered that pretty damn well. Um, I really got nothing to add there. 
Yeah, uh, and I know we were talking about the the Weimar Germany priced in gold mm, uh, versus yep. the paper marks. I actually just posted that up in the nest. Uh, I think I believe you quoted it from Dylan Leclerc, or at least that's the chart that I'm posting up there for now. Um, and it shows that you know it looks like a steady up and to the right rise of like gold in marks. But when you Dylan posted it with showing the rate of change at basically, it, you know, gold going up in price, crashing in price, and doing the volatility of it is just absurd. Um, it's crazy. So, yeah, and I think Bitcoin's going through a very similar thing. You know, I yep. guess if you're looking at it from like the Austrian school of like how, how money, how basically a base layer money be- gets monetized and becomes a money, um, I definitely see that as the case now. Uh, I guess, Dan and Josh, you could probably attest to guys in the firehouse saying, how is Bitcoin's purchasing power like a preserver when it's only gone down, what, 75% value from 69K highs right now to, we're at, I think, 22 or 23K? So I guess maybe if you guys want to expand on that topic, I know that uh, I agree that it's monetizing. It's going to be a volatile journey. As you guys say, it's a slippery hog to hold on to. You just don't want to get over levered and over your skis. But I guess if you guys want to add anything to that, Dan or Josh. Um, I want to take a quick divergence here because that chart just reminds me of something we were talking about. Actually, Dan and I were talking about this on a little road trip we did. The interesting thing about this is, so the Fed, in my opinion, my estimation is that they are raising rates because they understand that they're going to have to start cutting rates and they want to raise rates to a certain level where they feel like they have some cushion to start easing again. So where I see this chart kind of intersecting the reality we're seeing right now is in say, and I think we talked to Sansoni about this as well, Dan, in our last episode, is basically they they want to provide themselves a cushion so that in say November, because we all know this is all politicized, they're going to probably start cutting in order to uh, make the sitting president happy so he looks good for the next election cycle. They want to get this to a place where they can start cutting meaningfully so that they can show that the, we stopped or at least halted inflation. Now we're going to ease a little bit or a lot of bit in order to let the economy recover here. So they have to get rates high enough so that they can start doing that. And in so doing, when they do decide and they make the announcement that they're going to make some cuts, however that happens probably later this year, early next year, all of these risk assets are going to absolutely skyrocket. And we're going to see this chart playing out, especially in Bitcoin. Like, you watch this thing go to 69,000, we're watching it go down to 17,5, maybe it goes to 10, I have no idea. But when they do uh, pivot, the this thing is going to rip. And it's going to do ex- it's it's going to make waves just like we're seeing in this chart of gold going exponential, absolutely shitting the bed, down 80%, and then exponential again in shorter and shorter periods of time. I mean, it seems at least likely from the chair I'm sitting in a risk chair chair just like uh boss. <laughs> <laughs> Fireman sitting in a risk chair. Um, yeah, I do. I got. I love what you just said, Josh and Chris. Um, I think a very key message for any Bitcoiner, but particularly one that's recently hopped on the ship, say this cycle, and this is their first real cutback that they've experienced. Uh, expect volatility, man systemically fragile markets that are underpinned by credit, which we've talked about, they are going to have a propensity to be volatile and increasingly so. It, it makes me think of, you know, Pish talking about like contractions and the mar- the contractions of the market are getting closer and closer together. But this thing is going to whipsaw both directions. That's markets in general. But now let's zero in on what Bitcoin is. And let's be honest about what Bitcoin is. And I think price action over the last six months to a year has shown us that it's different than a lot of us maybe hoped or expected. We're not even remotely close to a decoupling, right? Bitcoin is is still very new. It's only 13 years old. It's by and large very poorly understood. It has totally inelastic supply that's completely unresponsive, which can create massive upside. And anytime you get massive upside, guess what you get with it? Massive downside. And then just in the mind of most big financial players, this thing, Bitcoin is optional and speculative. A credit crunch environment where people need, need to come up with dollars to make good on promises. They're going to get rid of things that are optional and speculative. And in the minds of a lot of big money, right? Hedge funds, family offices, whatever. We could go down the list. Bitcoin sits squarely in that category. One of the things you said that's most important in my view is it's massively misunderstood. 
that is the reason that it's so, it's so important to responsibly attain as much of this as you can. If you understand it and you have conviction in it and you can with, you can withstand and deal with the emotional terror that comes with watching your, you know, investment go down 70%, which this is now my second rodeo on this to having, you know, dealt with 2018 and 19. If you can withstand the pain, you in the long term you're going to be much better off. Like this this thing is going to be worth much more money. I wouldn't put a number on it, but it, it is the misunderstanding of what this asset is and the, what the bearer instrument side of it actually means. I mean, the fact that even Satoshi himself said this is basically, imagine a gray metal that, like gold, could, but it could be sent over to the other side of the world at the speed of light. That's, that is, I mean, a very simple understanding of this, but that is meaningful the fact that this is a, a very finite substance that can be moved around the world at the speed of light and can be stored on a couple of seed plates in a couple of different places and nobody can take it from you no matter what. There is no way for them to take it. Yes, yes, amen. And I mean, this is where obviously we're, we're just two limited perspectives, but this is, I mean, at this date and time, we, we couldn't be screaming any louder about the opportunity. Unfortunately, for those that don't have any predisposition or understanding of what Bitcoin is, it is really hard to get through to people right now. And I'm sure there's some people in the audience that resonate with that. Like, you know, this is the time to be buying this thing, but people are so emotionally driven and so latched on to price action, short-term price action, it's hard to get through. But back to this chart, Chris, like, Going back to the paper market in Germany, I mean, think about what a buying opportunity gold would have been in those, you know, massive troughs, right? And we're we're in one right now where the, you know, about of dollar strengthening, as we could say, and this is not going to be the last time it's going to happen. It's just that the barometer is going to move, right? I mean, in this piece, I threw up. Uh, it was, I think it was documenting Bitcoin and basically the point, it was a tweet they had showing the same price of Bitcoin at 22,000 uh, in at one point in time, I think it was maybe 2017, it was extreme greed and it's currently extreme fear at the same price point. And it, it, it makes me think of Vijay Boyapati's bullish case for Bitcoin talking about just how relative assets are as they're monetizing. What is cheap and expensive is a totally moving target. And today's capitulation was, you know, the euphoria from three years ago. And that's going to continue to play out in the future. But man, if you're somebody that understands what's going on here, uh, in, my, in my opinion, these environments like we're in right now are going to look unbelievable as buying opportunities. And, and I, I just can't say that loud enough. Yeah, Dan, to your point, I think with uh, massive volatility also comes massive speculation, uh, unfortunately. So I think a lot of people, you know, whether we're equating this back to Weimar Germany with them speculating on the price of gold and the price of the, the paper marks is exactly what's going on in, in Bitcoin right now with large institutions or, you know, Tesla or you name it, uh, basically com uh, companies and or people speculating on the price going up and down. But with this mass speculation and volatility, it's people speculating in all facets of the economy, in real estate, in uh, used cars were up like 50% a year ago. <laughs> so like there's just speculation across the economy. And when you're centrally planning it, you are making it more difficult for people and businesses to make sound economic decisions. So uh, I, I'll steal a line that you guys always mention in your podcast, but it's a slippery hog and it is a very wild one to say the least. But ultimately, I think our thesis are the same that, you know, in a long enough time horizon, this is going to be a very successful, uh, I don't even want to say investment, but just a very successful thing to preserve your purchasing power, kind of equating it to your article. I, I know we're kind of coming to the end here, but I think uh, I want to hit on part three before we do. It's Bitcoin is money made simple. And I, I guess I just want to say two really quick qu quotes from two awesome Jeffs in the Bitcoin space. One is Jeff Ross. At some point in the future, Bitcoin will be seen as the ultimate risk off asset. Obviously, he's speaking that it's seen as a risk on asset currently. And then another one was Jeff Booth. The technology of Bitcoin allows you to build a system peer to peer that doesn't require debt for velocity of money. And what I just said is probably the most important thing about Bitcoin. Uh, these are just two references that you guys had in your piece, Dan and Josh. 
Uh, I guess if you want to go there or if you want to start on basically the title of uh, Bitcoin Money Made Simple, uh, what are your thoughts? That Jeff Booth quote didn't strike me much when I first heard it. But the more I thought about it, it is probably one of the most inspiring quotes in Bitcoin I've ever heard. Because in the past, we've always needed to have credit in order to move money at any pace around the world with any velocity. And which builds this entire monster of having counterparty risk across the board built on top of other counterparty risk. But this asset, because it can be transmuted across the world at the speed of light, it requires absolutely no counterparty risk whatsoever. And that that is encapsulating what, what his quote means. And it's when you really understand it, it really, really strikes home. Yes, it does. Um, the the just to regurgitate some of what you guys have been saying, I mean, the we, we just talked about how Bitcoin's probably going to shit the bed in deflationary credit crunches in the short run. But like that Jeff Ross quote you threw out, I don't see it staying that way um, in that. When you think about a censorship-resistant digital bearer asset, it, you can hold a financial instrument outside of the financial system, right? So when when we we think about a financial system built on you know promises built on promises that's bound to implode, I think when Bitcoin becomes more ubiquitous, well understood, unanimously held by all market participants or most market participants, I agree with Ross. I envision a future in which you see people flooding it, not into cash, treasuries, and gold, or, or maybe they're still doing that, but Bitcoin sort of enters that fray as an option for people in credit crunch environments. That's how I feel Bitcoin is built, and when it's better understand, that's what I think it will accomplish. So yeah, I, I just I agree, Josh, that that booth quote was so profound, kind of my standout from the conference. Chris, in regards to the piece in general, this third piece, the main the main point is that if I was to try to summarize it, it's that sound money, right? Sound and usable money are, allows people to save money properly. Saving and investing have become synonymous in today's economic landscape because over time, dollars lose value, right? You can't preserve generational wealth. I think in a less debt-based, lower credit environment, you're going to see you know, that Bitcoin is 21st century proof as sound money. It's sound money that works in the 21st century that allows people to preserve buying power. That doesn't mean investment's not going to happen. It doesn't mean debt's not going to be issued and credit's not going to proliferate. It just means it's going to be less overdone. You're going to be able to preserve money in a sound asset that's going to, in the long term, preserve buying power. And, and investment is going to become investment. It's not going to be synonymous with saving. I mean, back to the circles we run in, everybody is, quote unquote, saving for retirement in portfolios full of equity, exposed to massive systemic risk without even knowing what those words mean. Like we, we need to get back to a place where it is possible to earn money and preserve money. And I, and I think Bitcoin is going to enable that. Um the, the transition may be less than comfortable, but that's sort of the main thrust of this third part, Chris. Definitely. Q, do you have anything else that seems you're back from your uh, from your bathroom run or whatever I'm it was? I'm so sorry, man. <laughs> I had to take the biggest dump of my life. Uh, I no, hope I it was can't. a ghost wipe. <laughs> I can't. Um, guys, I love the work you do. I, I love sort of the perspective you bring to this space because like you are you speak more from the lens of the pleb quite frankly than most of the people that bitcoiners idolize and hold up on these pedestals um we're honored to be called plebs <laughs> um i want to throw a wrench in this because i like to be spicy i want to go back to the question that i wanted to ask you and if you'll entertain me to take the conversation back to ubi for just a moment um I buy every single data point that it that proves that UBI will not materially work. However, that is running under the assumption that you want to make the current system continue to work. But as Bitcoiners, none of us want that. As Bitcoiners, why do we reject something like UBI 
that would be the kiss of death to fiat that would actually ruin the dollar even faster. Like I hear UBI and my yeah. instinct is, fuck yeah, print more money. Yo, oh, you, <laughs> you want to put liquidity back in the market? Fuck yeah, do it. Burn this shit down in two years instead of 20. So why? Yeah, like that's the, my argument. I think, I think the response, and I, I think when you watch, we talked a little bit about why it might be better in the long run for everybody if if this thing doesn't burn down in two years is because, I mean, when when shit happens fast and things break really badly, you're not, this isn't going to be the kind of scenario any of us want to live through. Like, it's going to be like that would be a Mad Max scenario where it you're going to need gold, coffee, whiskey, and guns. Like, that's not the kind of investing I want to be doing. Like, I'd much rather watch this thing fall apart in a more easy 20 year period, allow people to understand what's happening and protect themselves. Because let's be honest, 95% of the world doesn't understand what's going on and they're not protected. And I don't want 95% of the world looking for me when I'm lucky enough to have figured out what's going on here. That's basically the reason that I don't want to see this thing fall apart in two years, because it'll be, it'll be a fucking disaster. Yes. I, I agree in a lot of ways. I mean, I think, I think they're going to, I mean, they're going to, they're going to do UBI. Like, I, I don't, I don't see any other way around it. I think the, the levers that they've kind of gotten used to pulling um, through the banking system are sort of at the bottom. Like they, they can't get any more leverage out of them. And so, I mean, I think COVID was a, a perfect representation of they're going to have to use the, the fiscal route to get money moving appropriately, especially when you, you know, add in the fact that wealth inequality is where it's at. I, I see it sort of as an, an inevitability, and I and I do think it will be a billboard for Bitcoin. Um, in in blue collar Bitcoin speak, like throw as much slop in the hog pen as possible because it's going to make Bitcoin go to the moon. The more artificiality and slop that is thrown in markets, the more that this bright orange bee is just going to keep flashing. Is uh, I kind of think what you're getting at, and he's getting at, and so yeah, from a my bags going up standpoint, um, I, I, I totally re- resonate with what you're saying. And I, and I think it will lead to <laughs> Bitcoin price appreciation. Um, any other thoughts there, Josh, on that? I mean, are you, were you saying, no, Josh, one I, clarification, yeah. were you saying that you think that UBI would accelerate the demise no. of the system to a troublesome degree? No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I, all I'm saying, I was speaking to the him, Q saying that he wants to see it blow up in two years and i'm just concerned about the implications of what that would mean like i have absolutely no problem with this thing going down like the ship is going down like the the pace at which the water is taken on and how fast they can pump it out is the real question so i just would really prefer for me and my kids and everyone listening to not live in a you know a, a dystopian world where we have to go through 20 years of dark ages in order for this thing to to end and and flip itself into a bright orange B, you know, I, I yeah. was hoping that we can see this thing transition w- without too much upheaval. Yeah, that's that's really what I was trying to get at. I, so I, I certainly I, want this thing to end up being the the end end game, which I think it is. But um, I'm just hoping we can get there without uh, too much cataclysm. So, I think we have to unfortunately, like Josh, you're so spot on. If it, it happens so shocked, like it's it's actually even worse for the everyman if it happens so shockingly because it's not the everyman that's going to be able to go and just buy a thousand, two thousand dollars of Bitcoin at once. It's Wall Street, it's Washington D.C., it's the one percent of the one percent. They're going to be just fine. Oh, the, your dollars are going to be worthless by the end of this week. Cool. You're telling me buy gold. You're telling me buy Bitcoin. All right, fine. I now have ten Bitcoin. I now have. $10,000 in gold and boom, it recreates the same issue. I totally agree with that. However, I think we have to separate what we want and what society needs and what is also likely to happen based on just historic examples. And unfortunately, history and the way technology is adopted, most people are going to miss this. The majority of people are going to miss this and they're never even going to understand what happened. I agree. Like, like their kids, kids will read about it in textbooks and they'll say, huh? 
uh, that's not how I remember it. Like someone said something about inflation and the next thing I knew I was paying $20 a gallon for gas, but then the government owned all the gas stations and I don't know, something happened. Like that, yeah. that is the majority experience. And um, that's exactly why we're doing what we're doing because we're hoping that we can, you know, bring along as many people as we can. That's, that's really the, the basis for us, you know, Dan writing this piece, us doing this podcast once a week is the, and talking to all the guys at the firehouse that we know. And, uh, I think everyone in this space, that's their ultimate goal is to bring along as many people as they can. And we're just trying to do the small part we can, because we're a couple of boneheads who don't know how to code. It's the best way we can help. <laughs> Yo. Q, Q, I wanted to say one other thing. Cause yeah, dude, I, I love what you just said. Like we may want it to happen one way, but that's not necessarily how it's going to roll out. Um, and and it's, I think the the fragility of the current system is underappreciated massively. Like what could happen is beyond what a lot of people expect. We are used to a Fed put a rescue to the downside that mitigates what could have devolved way, way further. In part one of this piece, I basically talked about 08, the GFC and saying, you know, they they sat around and watched the Lehman and Bear events, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers events. I mean, these are two massive financial players, right? And then contagion spread further downhill and they're like, oh shit. Like if this keeps going, there may not be food in grocery stores. Credit cards could be shut down for months at a time. The, the, the majority of middle and lower class nest eggs could be wiped out. It is this safety net below the trapeze that I think a lot of people sort of take for granted and is, I guess, as the trapeze gets higher and higher and as debt loads get more exorbitant, um, this thing could potentially, you need to be ready for this thing to unwind in a way that's wildly uncomfortable for society. Um, and, th and that's, I think, why like a, a zero position in Bitcoin is just, is just crazy, in my opinion. Like when you're, when you're starting with people, whether that's family friends, people at the firehouse for us, like getting off, getting off zero is, is very much in play for the average person out there. And this thing really could be just about the only lifeboat. If, if the system really let go, are we saying that's going to happen? No, but mechanically the system is built such that that could happen. Yeah. And I think I'm just being uh, trying to be as much of an optimist as I can in the <laughs> watching the, all of the shit go down because 10 years ago I would have said, fuck it, blow it all up. Like, I don't give a shit. But when you get you've got kids and you you think about those types of things you don't want you do not want that shit happening you know as you get older and maybe a little more mature you you hope that things go a little bit more gradually and people can figure it out so it's not a total fucking shit show i still got some time it's just me myself and i and i guess i should also be considerate of my girlfriend too but no kids to worry about well, fuck it man just blow it up Exactly. Uh, Chris, I've seen your hand up this whole time. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it from here. Uh, unfortunately, I do have a hard stop that I got to begin the wrap up here. Uh, Dan and Josh, it has been a blast having you both here. Uh, before I let you guys wrap, for those in the audience, make sure to get your tickets to Bitcoin Amsterdam. You can use the code BMLIVE to get 10% off your tickets. You can also use the code BMLIVE for everything in the store, as well as getting the censorship-resistant issue that just dropped. Very awesome uh, magazine that we created. We put a hard work into it. Dan and Josh, I will let you guys go, and then uh, Q and Wicked, you can wrap as well. But uh, thanks so much, guys. And I say this not just from me. Uh, but from everyone at Bitcoin Magazine, thanks for being crazy Bitcoin plebs that run into burning buildings to save people. But uh, where can everyone find what you guys do and all the work that you got, awesome work that you guys put out? Thanks for having us. Um, we are we put out weekly episodes, Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Um, our main Twitter handle that Josh and I share is at blue underscore collar BTC, the one I'm using right here. Yeah, but also um, follow Firehouse Trash for uh, we're hopefully going to start re uh, reanimating this thing for some more shit posting. So follow Firehouse Trash as well. That is an actual trash can, by the way. Firehouse that's, that's trash can. That is at headquarters of the department we work at. That is an actual trash can. Our friend Ryan is the one that put that face on it. And um, <laughs> yeah, we're going to start uh, shit posting on that thing. I'm sure it'll get banned a number of times based on what we're going to do with that uh, handle. Yep. Thanks for listening, everybody, to a couple of plebes who pick up old ladies. <laughs>
Thank Put out so- fires and pick up old ladies. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dan and Josh. I appreciate all the work that you guys do. We'll definitely have to talk again soon. I, w- I w- honestly wish it could have been longer, um, but it was such great content. Make sure to check out the article on Bitcoin Magazine, the three-part series. Um, it was awesome, awesome content in there. Great uh, references and links. Uh, thanks everyone for hanging out with us and we will catch you tomorrow. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB Podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah.